0: Alright, it's great to have you guys back. Um, I was a little jealousy in the pictures, just like a beautiful area, um, and I know the people there were beautiful as well. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to get into a sermon today. So Lord, thank you for just your blessing, uh, the blessing of being able to serve you and how we're blessed so much in return, more than we give. I pray today as we dive into this subject that you would cover it with grace, that that your mercy would flow today, Lord, from from your word into our hearts and that you'd use today to help us see some things that maybe we haven't seen and just invite you into places in our life where we need you. So we're relying on you, Lord. we, We praise you, we thank you, and we turn to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Gabby said, um, we're continuing our series called Uncovering Sexuality, and I want to jump right in and get started this morning. We're going to start with today, what's after last week, our new favorite book of the Bible. I heard that from many of you this week, Song of Solomon, your favorite book. And uh, by way of review, as we get going, Song of Solomon is this very romantic and at times erotic collection of love poems or songs. And it's written about this couple that is experiencing the gift of love and romance and marriage and sexuality that God offers them. And it's the celebration of, of sexuality and God's gift of it to us. And last week, as we met the couple, we discovered they were pretty happy Uh, Things seemed to be off to a good start. She was pumped on kissing him. He was excited about her hair and temples and eyes and breasts. And we learned that she had all her teeth, which she pointed out excitedly, which makes me wonder about the the dating life of this guy prior to this moment. But um, that's another message. Then there was some more erotic stuff involving gazelle fawns and gardens and... All the joys of enjoying sexuality in the context of a safe, committed, and firming environment. But now today, we jump forward and we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And the couple is continuing on. And they are singing and celebrating the passion and desire and romance of their relationship once more. She says to him, Listen, my beloved, look! Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Which, you know, my wife has said of me. (laughs) Never out loud, but I'm sure she's thought it a lot of times because I'm so staggish whatever that is and and then he answers in reply again to her my dove in the cliffs of the rock and the hiding places on the mountainside show me your face let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely and we feel the anticipation and the excitement as they just long to see each other and be together and anticipate when they will get to interact again and the bible once more, affirms how pro romance and attraction and affection and desire God is when these things are expressed in the right way. But now we look at what He says in verse fifteen, and this is the voice that the verse that we're actually going to hone in on this morning. He says this to her: "Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. Our vineyards that are in bloom. Now, this is the first verse in this entire book." that even hints at a possible concern up until now, and moving on past this, it's all romance and desire and excitement and joy and happiness, and yet in this one little verse, we catch just a glimpse of some concern, and here's the image, it's an image that we should be familiar with here in Oregon, the picture he paints is of a blossoming vineyard. And how this works is that in the spring, right before the grapes appear on the vines, there are these little blossoms that bud out. And one of the problems they had in the ancient Near East was that foxes would come in, they would sneak into the vineyards and they would eat those blossoms off the vines. And when they would do this, it would prevent the vines from being fruitful. So when he says this here in verse 15, when he talks about a fox in the vineyard, what he's saying is it's a metaphor for something in the relationship that would keep it from bearing fruit. Something that wants to rob and steal and kill and destroy the beautiful vision for marriage and sexuality that God offers us and longs for us to experience. That's a fox in the vineyard. Now, this verse raises for us An incredibly important and extremely significant theological conversation and question. What does the fox say? What does the fox say, Luis? Do you know the secret of the fox? It's like hati, hati, hati ho. No, you don't know. If you're confused right now, ask your grandkids. Everything's okay. And just in case you think I'm just goofing around um, during the sex talk, I'm not. This is actually what we're going to discuss this morning. Last week, Pastor Matt described for us this beautiful, wonderful, joyful, satisfying, blessed by God, sexuality that we've been given as human beings. And today I am here to tear it all down. Today, we get to talk about foxes. Today, we're going to talk about what happened, what happened to this beautiful vision for human sex and sexuality that God created. What are the things, what are the foxes that come and steal from us the beauty of That God intended how do we go from sex in the garden this joyful perfect wonderful intimate place into a sexual world that feels dark and broken and filled with questions and struggles and pitfalls at every turn go with me back to Genesis chapter 2 and if we remember from last week God created the man and the woman. In Genesis chapter 2, he zooms in on the creation of humanity. And at the very end of this chapter, at the very end of creation, we read this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Friends, this is not just a statement about the absence of clothes. This is not Eve feeling extremely attractive today or adam he really likes the way he looks he just shopped at men's warehouse or something no this is a statement about the kind of relationship god created us for and longs for us to have a relationship that's completely and utterly vulnerable without any fear, without any insecurity. There was a 100% transparency there. There was no fear of worry. There was no rejection. There was no fear of ridicule. You see, the Bible, friends, is telling a grand story of who we are. The Bible is talking to us and telling the story of why we exist and what it truly means to be human. But now we come to chapter 3, and now in chapter 3 we will discover how our story, the grand story of God and His wonderful creation, has been and is still being co-opted by sin. And here we meet, for the first time, the original and ultimate fox. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, the fox without feet, if you will, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Friends, quick word of wisdom here. Anytime you encounter a talking snake, whether it's in the scriptures or in the jungle book, don't believe them. Don't listen to them. Do not let them stare deeply into your eyes. You will lose every time. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, notice what he's doing here. There is a garden full of yeses. There are an innumerable number of trees to choose from. And where does the serpent draw their attention? To the one and only no. Trees everywhere, take your pick, enjoy, have a party, have a heyday, all this is for you, all this joy, all this blessing, all this creation. Where do they focus? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die." Prince, do you see how her focus has been shifted to the boundary, to the limitation, to the one tree that she is not supposed to eat from? And there's a word for this. There's a word for this attitude in English, and it's a word for when a person has been given so much, and yet their focus goes to the one thing they do not have. Our word for that is ingratitude. Ingratitude. You've been given this and this and this and this. And your response is, well, how come I don't have that? That is what I want. Do your kids ever do this to you or is it only me? I mean, not thank you, dad, for what you've given me. Not thank you, dad, for a nice day. Not thank you, dad, for ice cream and a trip to the park. But dad, if I could only just have this other thing that you haven't given Mostly for us, it's, I want to stay up later. That's our world right now. But um, that's just us. Friends, this is our world. This attitude, this posture, characterizes our world so perfectly. This temptation in our culture has a marketing department. Every single advertisement out there is designed to help you focus on what? What you don't have. If you only had this lots of trees out there sure but if you only had this tree then you would be truly satisfied then you would be full then you would be whole then you would be complete then your life would feel rich friends do you see how this attitude is at the core of so many of our sexual struggles how far can i go where's the focus Where's the line? How can I push the line, cheat the line, pretend and argue that the line isn't there, shouldn't be there, doesn't apply to me. I mean, what's the big deal anyway? We're just spending time together. Everybody's doing it. It's legal, you know. It's not hurting anybody. It's only a website. Friends, is it me or are we masters at this? Masters at questioning and justifying and rationalizing away the boundaries that God has given to us. And let me just pause right here and ask, why? Why does it matter? I mean, who cares? Why do we care so much as Christ followers about the boundaries God has given to us sexually? Why does the church sometimes get pigeonholed into being like the watchdogs of sexual purity? Why do we care so much? Should we? The answer is yes, we should, and here's why. Genesis chapter 1, let's go back to the very first moment of creation, the moment we were created, the very first time it's mentioned, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created humanity, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, friends, and don't miss this point, this is huge. At the very center of who you are, of who God created you to be, at the core of your identity and what it means to be human, to be you, is your sexuality. Think of it as, like, like one of these uh, little Russian dolls that I got this week. Every single one of us is like one of these little Russian dolls. There's layers to us. There's layers to who we are. There's layers to our identity, Right? There's outer layers and there's inner layers, and maybe on the outer, on the, on the, an outer layer thing would be something like uh, you're a fan of a sports team. Maybe you like the Portland Trailblazers because we live here in Portland, and you're cheering for them. I'm a Trailblazers fan. That's part of who I am. That's actually true of me. I cheer for them. That's part of my identity. It's not a central part of my identity. It's not a crucial part of my identity. In fact, it's very peripheral. But it's it's here on the outside. But if you peel back a layer and you go in a little farther, you find out some other things about me and about yourself right maybe you'd say here's some things i like to do here's a hobby i enjoy i like to paint i like to hike i like to unicycle i like to you know play tennis whatever it is for you right those things you like to do those hobbies those activities are part of who you are they're part of your identity but they're still you know fairly outside of the center and so you go down a little farther and maybe in here it's your vocation i'm a pastor i'm a teacher I'm a coach. I'm an engineer. I'm a stay-at-home dad. I, you know, these. This is what I do. It's it's a little closer now to the core of who I am because it involves a whole lot of my life. But it's still not the very center. And so you pull the parts back again, right? And maybe now, as we get closer to the center, maybe in here we start to say things like, the role you play in your family. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a mom. I'm a dad i 'm a husband or a wife or a, a single, like that 's who I am, but it 's still not the center, and you peel back layer after layer after layer, because these little Russian dolls they never end <laughs> and i don 't have that many examples, people, but at the very center, at the very core, down in the very heart of who you are, what 's there? Who are you here? A person made in the image of God. But friends, hear this and don't miss this. Just one layer up, the very next layer, right on top of the the made-in-the-image-of-God layer is what? Your sexuality, your maleness, your femaleness. It sits right Close to the center. In fact, for most people, it is so close to the core that it is difficult to distinguish the two. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Woven deep into your personhood. Friends, this is why we, as followers of Jesus, take our sexuality so very seriously. Because it's Right down at the center of our lives, of who I am and, and, of who, and of who you are. It's why Paul, who echoes, it's all throughout the New all throughout the Bible, by the way, and Paul writes about this in the New Testament time and time again. It's why he writes to the church at Corinth in Corinthians 6: flee from sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality is one of two words to describe sexual sin in the New Testament. It's the word porneia and it's where we get our word pornography from. It's a broad word. It's a word that covers all forms of sexual sin. It's anything that takes you or goes outside of God's plan for your life in the area of sexuality. And he says flee from it. That word flee is the word "epekomai." So he says pecomi porneia. Don't mess around with sexual sin. Don't Go anywhere near it. Run from it. Flee from it. Do not mess with this boundary in any way at all. Why? He continues. And this is where he gets into that Genesis 127 stuff. All other sins a person commits are outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body here's what paul is saying he's saying do not let sin brokenness corruption pain hurt disobedience into an area that is so closely woven into the center of who you are this is not a scratch on the hood of your car this is a full on transmission breakdown this is an engine repair this is this goes very this goes all the way down to the heart of your personhood so don't play around with this don't take this one lightly all other sins a person commits are outside of the body think about that for a minute friends think about the power of that statement all other sins it's a pretty big category all other sins lying stealing murder terrible offer things with horrible consequences but they do not tamper with something as close to your core as your sexuality When you let sin, friends, the Bible says, run free in this area, it will have devastating effects on your life. It's not a worse sin in God's eyes. It's not the unforgivable sin. God doesn't look down and go, oh, you sin sexually, you're in big trouble. No, he takes it seriously because he knows it's going to have significantly more drastic consequences for you. Jesus knows this as well. Uh, it's 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 why when he talks about sexual boundaries, he he also uses such emphatic language. Listen to what he says. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and I heard a great definition for lust this week. Anything that you imagine that if you were to do it, it would be a sin. Isn't that great? I mean, that's not great to do, but it, but it's a great way to think about lust. Like is you I have this kind of idea, of lust is this vague thing. No, 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 no. It's not vague. It's anything that if you. Play it out in your mind. If you were to actually really do it, it would not be an okay thing to do. So if it's not okay to do, it's not okay to think. It's not okay to long for in your brain. Okay, But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and I think, ladies, he would apply this to you as well, um, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. He goes on to say, like, if your hand's the issue, cut it off. Now, is Jesus being literal here? He's not. (laughs) Let's be really clear before anyone goes home and does something drastic. He's not being literal. He is not supporting self-mutilation. But he is saying something very powerful. He's saying, take drastic measures. Do whatever you have to do. Go to whatever lengths you have to go to to protect this extremely central part of your life. Let me give you just one example. It's just super simple. I have a friend. He has some struggles in this area. He struggles with stuff on his phone, by the way. The number one place by far, and not even close, where people now view and observe and watch pornography is on their phones. So if you're a parent, know that. Locking down the home computer is no longer like sufficient. Phones are where it's at. And I have a friend, and, and he just struggles in this area. It's a, it's a tempting, difficult area. And he's you know, humble enough to be honest and, and forthright about that. And so what he has is he has a little app. It's called Accountable to You. And this app uh, sends me every single thing that he downloads on his phone. Every single web page he visits, every single text, I, I can see it all. And it kind of breaks it down into a category of like, you know, dangerous, not so dangerous, and totally okay or whatever. And if he tries to, like, take the app off his phone, I also get notified by that. So it's got all these safeguards. I can see everything he's doing on his phone, on my phone. Right? Now that seems a little bit crazy, right? Isn't that kind of extreme? I mean, no. It's called do whatever you need to do to make sure that sin and depravity and destruction doesn't seep into the core of your personhood and damage you significantly. Now, friends, let's make this personal. How about you? When you think about your sexual life, your sexuality, is your focus on what you do or don't have? Do you dwell on what you've been given by God? The opportunities you have and, and the the sexual season of your life right now? Do you dwell on the positive gifts from him? Or are you focused on what you don't have, can't have, shouldn't have? Where is the focus? Where is the posture of your heart? Step one, friends. The first step in leading us, leading the world, leading humanity, leading you and me away from the vision that God has for sex and sexuality in the garden towards sexuality and brokenness and darkness and pain is simply ingratitude, a focus on what we cannot have. Verse 4, the serpent speaks again. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what what Satan does here? He's so sneaky, he's so slick. He undermines the goodness and trustworthiness of God. He says, don't follow God's plan. God is holding out on you. In fact, there is something better out there that you are missing out on. If you follow God, you're going to miss out on all the good stuff. Friends, what is Satan pulling them into here? What is Satan pulling us into when he does this? Idolatry. You see, if step one towards sex in the dark is in gratitude, step two is idolatry. Now, some of you are thinking, what does this passage have to do with a shiny gold statue, and what does that have to do with sex uh, in the slightest? Let me, ex- let me explain it to you. Stay, stay with me for a second. An idol is not a little statue that you bow down and worship. No, that's not true, actually. An idol could be a little statue that you bow down and worship, but it is so much more than that in the Bible. Here's how the Bible defines an idol. Anything in your life you trust more than God. Anything other than God that has the final say over your thinking, attitudes, actions, decisions. And what the serpent tells Eve here is this. Don't let God drive your decision here. Don't trust Him. Instead, instead, and here comes the idol, trust yourself. Trust your own desires. Trust what you want. Trust what looks good and seems pleasing. Let your desires dictate the way you are thinking about this decision. They should be God. They should call the shots. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, what has just become the idol, what's now driving her thinking here, Her desire is driving her thinking. Her desire is determining how she will act. And thus, it has become an idol. Now, let's apply this to our sexuality. There's an old country song um, that I used to love until I preached this sermon and now can't like anymore probably. But it's a song by Mary Chaplin Carpenter and it's called Passionate Kisses. And it's a very benign song at first. Uh, Mary Chaplin is talking about all the things that she wants in life. All the things that she thinks she should have. And as she starts off, it sounds fairly reasonable. I mean, her requests are not outlandish in the least. She wants like a pen that won't run out of ink. And I can totally relate to that because I hate that. When the pen runs out of ink, it's like, that's annoying. Give me a pen that won't run out of ink. She wants like some quiet time to herself so she can think. And I suppose she did that because think and ink rhyme and that works. Um, She wants like a full house when her band plays. Like she wants people to come to her show. Like, okay, like... Who wouldn't if you're a performer? Great. That's awesome. You know, she wants a comfortable bed. She wants food and warm clothes. It seems like basic human necessities, right? Okay, Mary, we'll give those things to you. But then she gets to the chorus and now we see how sense kind of seeps in and she sings, shouldn't I have this? Shouldn't I have this? Shouldn't I have all of this and Passionate kisses, right? Passionate kisses, whoa! Now you can picture me in my car, right? She wants the passionate kisses. She says, And shouldn't I have what I want? There's some things I want, and shouldn't I get what I want? And then at the end of the song, like, she takes it a step further and she says, I shout it out to the night Give me what I deserve, because it's my right. Passionate kisses, right? And she wants those passionate kisses, man. She's into those. Um, friends, this song declares the sexual ethic of our day so perfectly. I deserve, it's my right to have all my sexual desires met however I want them met, whenever I want them met, in whatever way seems right and pleasing to me. Shouldn't I have this? Shouldn't I have this? Shouldn't I have all of this and even more? Give me what I deserve. It is my right to be sexually, I couldn't say the word, sexually fulfilled at all times. And for you to say otherwise is like outlandish. Friends, when we let our sexual desires become the ultimate determining factor of what is right and what is wrong, of what we will and will not do, we have done nothing more than make our desires an idol. We have done nothing more than make ourselves God. Here's the question. Do you trust that God is good? That's what's on the line. Do you trust that God is good? That His plan is good, that His purpose is good, that His vision for you and for your sexuality is good. Friends, then do not let human desires have more influence on your sexual ethic and decisions than the Word of God. If God is good, His plan is good. And His plan is good even when it rams up against your desires, even when you desire something other than what God says is good. Now you have to decide, who's God? Me or God? Right? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. You see, here, friends, in in, in spite of popular opinion, this is a decision that the couple makes together. The ladies have gotten kind of a bad rap on here, uh, on this one. But, but they're both right there. You know, he's right there with her. We cannot, we can no longer just blame the ladies for this, guys. Like we're all in this sinking ship together. It's not going well for any of us. And here's the next step. The next step down from sex in the garden to sex in the dark to sexual brokenness. From, sex, from the God's vision for sexuality, ingratitude, idolatry, immorality. Transgressing, crossing the line, taking action to do what God has said don't do. See, friends, when we focus on what we can't have and let our desires determine our thinking about what is good, the next step will always eventually be transgressing the boundaries God has put in place. And I'll tell you what you have to do. I'll tell you what you have to do in your mind and in your heart to take a step like this to enter into immorality and most of us in this room have done this in one way or another at some point you have to ignore the consequences you have to just set them aside and say the result of what's about to happen is not going to happen you have to rationalize it away you have to convince yourself that it's not as bad as God says a couple months ago my wife and I were driving out to the coast and On the way, we determined that we wanted to take a hike. So Amy found this trail that we hadn't hiked yet, and um, we pulled off, and we had to get to this trailhead of this particular trail. We had to drive about six miles on this really windy, bumpy, rough trail dirt road, and so we're whining and driving, and we're going extremely slow, it takes about 25 minutes to get there, and when we arrive, we pull up, and we hop out, and we're getting our hiking shoes on, and we discover that there's a piece of caution tape, kind of draped across the trailhead, with a little, like, note sign thing that said, you know, trail closed due to logging, and we're like, what? We're just, how come I can't post that sign, like, six miles up the road? You know, we're we're 25 minutes in at this point. I was super bummed. And, um, you know, my wife was like, oh, I just don't think we should do it. And me, being like the Jesus-y pastor that I am, said, I think we can do it anyway. (laughs) Um, It's just a piece of plastic caution tape, I mean, this thing's not keeping me out, watch, you can walk right under, whoop! And so, um, what you'll find about Amy and I is like, she's kind of a big rule follower, and I'm not a rule follower at all, and so most of the time we balance each other out, and yet in this case, much to her chagrin, she took the apple that I gave her, and we began to walk down the trail. (laughs) Well, at first, everything was great, the trail was clear, and all was fine, and I'm saying, like, see, I told you, that thing's probably old, you know, and then we finally get over to the area where the logging had happened, and it didn't seem to be too bad, and there were some trees kind of down on the side of the trail, and we walked along, and then all of a sudden, as we were walking, I, the trail dipped down, and I noticed that when I looked up into the right, there was an enormous hill, giant like very steep hill just to the right of our trail like the trail was literally carved into the side of this thing and the logging had happened all along this this hill and so laying like stacked up and piled on this seriously about 45 degree hillside right above us are these giant cut down logs and so as we're walking i'm thinking to myself huh i'm doing quick calculations this could go really bad Do we have the life insurance policy paid up? You know, I mean, one strong breeze or snap of a branch and these, like, megaton tree logs could come crashing down on us. And I start to think, you know, maybe this decision was more dangerous than I thought. Maybe the consequences that I so eagerly wanted to ignore were actually worth paying attention to. Friends, When we step across God's sexual boundaries for us, when we depart from embracing and walking in and following His vision for our sexuality, there are always going to be consequences for those decisions. We may not see them instantly. They may not turn up on the first part of the trail. But friends, there will always be a consequence for departing from God's vision and his plan. You can never shake your fist at God and say, I will do it my way and find that there was no price to pay. Let me give you just an example. Time Magazine published an article recently about... Pornography it was in last month 's uh, edition, and the tagline read this way: The first generation of men who grew up with unlimited online porn sound the alarm. And what the article goes on to say is this: The results are in friends the uh, the stats are Are clear, They are overwhelming and they do not lie. Pornography significantly decreases a person's marital sexual satisfaction and it also makes the likelihood of divorce in marriage go up at a staggering rate. And I wish I could show you the picture that was attached to this article. I can't because the guy in it has his shirt off and I don't want you ladies lusting in church. But I'll tell you about the picture. There's this guy laying on his bed, I think, on his back and he 's there without his shirt on in full view, and off kind of to the side at a little bit of a distance is his wife and it 's hard to tell though because you can 't see her very clearly she 's blurred out like her image has been like distorted and like it's it 's blurry you can 't really see it, but what you can real see real clearly is the phone that he 's holding in his hands. You see the virtual is wiping out the real. The thing that at first promised fulfillment and satisfaction and freedom has now stolen and killed and destroyed the beautiful thing, the real thing, the truly fulfilling, satisfying, liberating thing that God offers us in His vision for our sexuality. You see, that's the final step, friends. Imprisonment. There is no way to walk away from God's plan and not pay a price. You may not pay it for a while. You may not even realize there's a price to be paid, but at some point it will catch up with you and you will be imprisoned. Listen to how the story ends. Then, the author of Genesis writes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do you see how this story is so tragically bookended? What started with safety and freedom and vulnerability and transparency and the soul connection that every single one of us longs for now has ended with fear and insecurity and shame and hiding. You see, this is imprisonment, friends, but it's imprisonment in reverse. They've been imprisoned, but they're not imprisoned, imprisoned, imprisoned. They, they've been imprisoned, but they're not locked in. They have been locked out. Locked out of something beautiful that they were created to experience. The very thing they embraced in order to find satisfaction and fulfillment and freedom has now imprisoned them in a place where what they long to have, they can no longer have. Friends, this is why Jesus, when he talks about sexual sin. He, uh, he talks about hell. Now, uh, most of us here when we read that is, you know, uh-oh, that's the really bad sin, and if you sin sexually, you're going to hell. You're in big trouble. Your eternity's at stake. Friends, this is not the message of Jesus. If that were the case, we would all be in trouble because every single person in this room, every single person in this room wrestles with sexual, sexual brokenness on some level, in some way. That ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's not because if you, you know, if you sin, you're going to hell. No, there's a lot of facets to hell. And the Bible kind of describes hell in a whole lot of different ways. And the way it's being described here, the way Jesus is using it here, is this way. It's a place of unquenchable thirst and unfulfilled longing. It's the state of being where we lose the ability to have our most significant needs satisfied, where what we look to to meet the deepest longings and desires of our souls fails us time and time and time again, and yet it's the place we continue to go back to over and over and over again. Friends, you want to get an earthly picture of hell, find someone who is pursuing more of something in this world, to satisfy their soul other than God. You see, you can lust. You know, you can lust over everything. Lust is just about greed. Lust is about this insatiable desire to want more. I need more. I need more. I want no restrictions. I want no boundaries. I just want more. And you can lust after money. You can lust after power. You can lust after fame. But what Jesus talks about here is the lust for sexual freedom and experiences and satisfaction outside of God's will in this area. Friends, it will never satisfy you. It will never fill you. And on the contrary, it will lock you out of the deep, wonderful, beautiful, life-giving experience God longs for you to have. This is so counterintuitive. Don't be imprisoned. The heart of Jesus here is, and I'm going to get you if you mess up, the heart of Jesus here is, I want something so wonderful for you. Did you hear the excitement last week from Pastor Matt as he laid out that vision? I should give him things to preach on that he's passionate about all the time. <gasps> that was kind of supposed to be a joke okay (laughs) now friends I understand that a message like this lands in a lot of different places Um, a lot of guilt a lot of shame maybe a lot of regret a lot of I wish I had heard this sooner I wish I could go back and do it over again maybe you're even here this morning and the sexual brokenness in you it isn't the result of the choices you made but it's the result of someone else walking this path and the choices they made for you. And if you're the victim of betrayal or abuse or neglect, I want to just say I'm so sorry. I want to say I'm so sorry for you. Some of you are here today and you got no place to look but in the mirror and that can be real hard too. I chose this road. I walked this road. I made these choices, and i can 't pin it on anyone else. I do want to say this to every single person here because again, all of us are wrestling with this on some level. Some of the people most attracted to Jesus were those who struggled with sexual hurt and brokenness and pain and regret. Samaritan woman, prostitutes, a woman caught in adultery. People with deep, deep pain in this area, and yet they flocked to Jesus because he did not come with judgment. He came with mercy and grace and hope and healing. And friends, if that's you today, if you are someone who struggles in this area, who has pain in this area, I just want to remind you that Jesus didn't reject these people. He didn't condemn them. Instead, he offered them grace and a hope, healing. You know, we're going to talk more about the gospel and how the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God and what that means for our, our sexual brokenness and how God longs to restore us and give us new life and hope and peace. We're going to talk more about that in week five when we talk about sex and the light. But I want to give you just a little foretaste of the feast to the come. You know that serpent, the deceiver, the one that leads the original couple off the path and from the vision to the darkness? Jesus comes and you know what he says? He says, I'm going to crush the head of that serpent with my heel. I'm taking that guy down. He will have no place in your lives anymore because of me, because of my work on the cross, because of my death and resurrection. Friends, this is not a hopeless message. This is not I've blown it and it's too late for me. At the foot of the cross, friends, it is never too late for anyone. You know, we in the church, we've not always been too good with that message. This is a tender, difficult message. And because it's a message that cuts so deep into people sometimes we've avoided it sometimes we've just settled for pat Christian answers sometimes we've shamed people because of their sexual brokenness friends if there's ever an area that deserves tremendous grace and compassion it's when someone comes and says there's something really really deep in me that's hurting that's been damaged That's in pain. That's not a moment when Jesus would ever condemn or judge or throw rocks. That's a moment when he would embrace and love and receive and say, there's help for you and there's hope for you. The church should be the safest place in the world to talk about sexual brokenness. Friends, if you are a person who struggles with sexual sin, if you are here today and you struggle with sexual brokenness because of someone else's sin, if you are the cause of someone else's sexual pain and brokenness, do not leave here today defeated. Christ has grace to offer you, not grace just to forgive you and send you on your way to live the same life, but grace to empower you and change you and redeem you and restore you and make you a new creation. Get help. Tap into the power of the church, the body of Christ, the Christian community. Friends, I want Cedar Mill to be the most loving, caring, safe, embracing place for people struggling in this area. Two ministries I want to talk about, soul care and mending the soul. Soul care is just a group of people who have been trained to just sit with you and help you invite Jesus into those deep, dark, broken places. The places deep inside of you that you may have a hard time inviting God into by yourself. Mending the soul will be a similar ministry if you're someone who who's has found that sexually you're just damaged and hurt and broken. And there's something in you that's just not right and you need help with that. See these folks. Talk to these people. Get the numbers at the, at the Welcome Center in your bulletin. Contact them. There is hope available in Christ through his body. The hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Again, we're going to talk more about that next week, but I just want to close with this today just a minute, we're going to come to the tables we are going to receive communion. You're going to remember this. This is what communion is today. There's no sin bigger. There's no sin stronger. There is nothing in this world stronger than the power of the cross and the power of the death and resurrection of our Lord. And so whatever sexual brokenness you bring to this table, Jesus says, has nothing for me. But before you come, I want to ask this of you. I want to ask you to consider, are you somewhere on that path right now? Are you in the middle of a, of a, of a struggle, of a downward spiral? Or are you in a place where you, you've lost sight of the blessing and joy of the sexuality you've been given and the place that you're at? Or are you focused on the boundaries? Are you focused on the nose in your life? Are you focused right now? Are you postured in your heart to think about the things you can't have and that you want? Where's your heart today? Do you have a heart of ingratitude? If so, just ask God to flip that around because that's going nowhere fast. Maybe you're in a place of idolatry. Maybe you're in a place where you're, you're letting personal desires or the desires of other people in this world dictate your sexual decisions, your sexual ethics. And I just invite you today to make God God again, to remember that He's good and say, God, I will trust you even when it's hard. Maybe you're in a place of immorality. And in a room this size, I'm sure that's actually a good number of folks. Well, you're engaged in some stuff that is not God's plan, not God's vision, not what God would want for you at all. Or maybe you're not engaged in some stuff that's taking you out of God's plan and God's vision for you and your life. Friends, if that's you, just... Bring it to Jesus today. We're not going to fix it this morning, but I do want to give you a chance to just invite Jesus into that place. He wants to meet you there. He meets you there with with mercy and he meets you there with love. And finally, if you're imprisoned, if you just feel like you're trapped in something and you've been locked out of God's great plan for your life, get help. Acknowledge it. Denial will not help. It will not go away on its own. You cannot fix it by yourself. You've proven that already. Get help. Seek God. Seek a trusted brother or sister in Christ and start to walk the road of healing and hope back towards the vision that God so longs to restore you to. Spend some time with the Lord. Take this stuff to Jesus. Just take it straight to Him and then when you're ready, come to the table and uh, receive the elements on your own. Thank you, Father, for showing us the path that leads to darkness and giving us the power through your son to resist it and go a different direction. May we be people that offer hope and light and healing in this world as we receive that hope and light and healing from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.